Welcome to Muddy River News This Week, brought to you by Harvey's Furniture. I'm David Adam, Muddy River News Editor, and this week we're going to be talking about the Safety Act. Uh, the Safety Act was passed by the Illinois Legislature in January of 2021 and was signed into law by Governor J.B. Pritzker, but now the law is just a few weeks away from actually being implemented uh, starting January 1st of 2023, and there have been uh, a lot of angst, a lot of people are concerned about the law, think that it needs to be tweaked or completely rewritten. Uh, there are a lot of aspects to this law that people may be confused about. And uh, there was a, a big town hall meeting here last week in which people expressed their concerns about the law. Today we're going to talk with Chris Pratt, the uh, from the Public Defender's Office here in Adams County. Welcome and thank you for taking the time. Thank you, I appreciate the invitation. Uh, Tell us what, let's start big picture and then maybe narrow in on a few, a few things. The law in general, good, bad, needs to be tweaked. Just give me your, your overall thoughts about it. Well, I guess, you know, from a technical standpoint versus a conceptual standpoint. From a technical standpoint, I will admit, and I think just about anyone will acknowledge this, even if they're in favor for, of the law, is that there are flaws. Almost uh, every act as written has some things that can be cleaned up, and they, they do often clean those up before they officially go into effect. They'll mm -hmm. have a, an amendment or a rider bill or trailer, something along those lines, that will fix some of the issues. And this bill does have issues. This, this act has issues, um, but overall, from a conceptual standpoint, the, uh, the second half, and the first part is about policing, and then the second half is about the criminal court system, which I'm certainly far more familiar with mm -hmm. that aspect of it, and, and that affects my office more directly. The concept here is to eliminate the use of cash bail for pretrial detainees. So it's not about uh, how much money you can post to determine whether or not you get out of jail while you're waiting for your day in court. Mm -hmm. I think that is a great idea. I, I think that's a fantastic concept. I think this law goes a long way and, and the right way in implementing that. Are there issues that can be cleaned up? Yes, obviously. So you're not saying the law is perfect? No. It's, it's not take it or leave it. You're saying, hey, let's fix something. What are some of the things that could be fixed, some of the low-hanging fruit? Uh, there are some internal inconsistencies uh, within definitions within the law mm -hmm. uh, or that where they uh, disagree with existing laws that haven't been repealed or rewritten by this law. And then you also have the issue, and one of the big issues is, uh, is this going to be retroactive? So we have, and Adams County, every other county in the, in the state has people who are sitting in jail on pretrial detention right now. Uh, they have a cash bond, almost all of them, that they cannot pay for whatever reason. So when January 1st comes, no one really knows whether they all need to be let out if they qualify under the Safety Act for not having, uh, a, for, for pretrial release, mm -hmm. or whether they need to stay in because the law is only forward uh, moving. And so that's one of the biggest issues. So, so there are things that can be corrected that can be cleaned up in this sure. law, certainly. When you talk about the people who are currently incarcerated and can't pay bail, of the clients that you work with, what percentage of that, of those people, don't have the money to pay bail? It's interesting that you asked that question uh, because I don't, I don't have the numbers for me. I, I, I have a significant number of clients and everyone in our office we represent 
individuals who are charged with criminal offenses where they can be jailed as a consequence of that offense. Mm -hmm. That's the tipping point for whether or not you can be entitled to a court-appointed attorney. So everyone in my office represents people, and if you are indigent, you lack the funds to be able to hire your own attorney. So that's the second part. So even though many of our clients are indigent, all of our clients are indigent technically, uh, many of them are able to be released, either by not having cash bond or by being able to pay a certain amount of cash bond. So while I can't give you specific numbers, I can tell you the vast majority of my clients are not lodged right, on nonviolent offenses, on uh, drug offenses, property offenses. Those, those individuals, while they're waiting for their day in court, are not always lodged. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, the, office, uh, the administrative office for the Illinois courts did an analysis statewide uh, all of the court circuits, so Adams County, Quincy sits in the 8th Circuit, where the, the, the seat of the, of the, the county mm -hmm. and then uh, the, the chief judge is actually out of Pike County, but Adams County is in the 8th Circuit. Mm -hmm. In the 8th Circuit, from 2017 to 2019, so the last two years pre-COVID, mm -hmm. and, and everything's been a little wonky since COVID, Absolutely. It's, it's, everything's yeah. been different, uh, but in the last two years before COVID, 2017 to 2019, across the 8th Circuit, 86% were not detained leading up to their trial. That's, Meaning, I mean, that's a remarkable number. I, I don't think anybody would have expected it. Yeah. Uh, it's not the number I would have expected, even an ideal this, with this every day. And so that information, you're talking about only 14% of felony defendants are actually detained pre-trial is a staggering number on the most serious cases, felonies, right? Only cases where you can go to prison for at least a year. Anything below that, maybe you could be jailed, but you can't go to the Department of Corrections. In any case, from 2017 to 2019, the last two years before COVID uh, threw everything for a loop, 86% were not detained, only 14% were detained in, in the Eighth Circuit. So when I look at that and then I hear people talk about this law and say all of these criminals are gonna be out on the street, I think a couple of things. First, the main thing that I wanna to stress to everyone is, this is a law, as, a, as it applies to cash bond, that only applies to pre-trial detainees. These are people who only have been accused of things. They've not been a, uh, convicted of anything. They've not gone to trial and lost. They've not taken a plea and pled guilty to something. This is someone gets arrested for something. Maybe it's a mistake. Maybe it's a misunderstanding. Whatever. The case could eventually get dismissed, could get resolved with a very minor plea agreement. Mm -hmm. That is the person we're talking about, not someone who's been convicted, who has been convicted of a, a triple homicide that we're talking about when we're going to let them out. We're talking about pretrial detainees. And so in these cases right now, only 14% of those people are being detained. So we passed this law. Then my second part is when we say everybody's going to be out on the street, how many more people can we let out? Yeah. All right, if 14% are the only people that are in, I, if anything, I suspect we're going to have more people jailed. And why do you say that? Well, for example, when you look at the types of laws that this uh, affects, right now, uh, if you have any kind of uh, offense, uh, even all the way up to murder, you are entitled to a cash bond. So if you have enough money, then you can post a bond. Right? And it could right. be hundreds of thousands of dollars that you post against that, that cash bond and then you're released. So it's not an equitable system in that regard. And, and certainly that hits home for my office and our clients because right. they're all indigent. They're going to be less likely, far less likely to be able to post bonds in those cases. So, for example, if you have somebody right now who's charged with uh, an order of violation, uh, order of uh, protection violation, and, and, and actually I've seen this happen. We've had people where they have, uh, somebody has an order of protection against them and you violate it, that's a class A misdemeanor. Mm -hmm. Making contact, doing anything that violates that order of protection. Uh, right now, 
you come in, they say, okay, you don't have any criminal history, we're going to give you a $5,000, 10% bond. Post $500, you're out. Okay. You can go right back and violate that bond again, or that, that order of protection. And, mm -hmm. I, and I've watched this happen in Adams County here, right. where we have had defendants go and violate an order of protection a half a dozen times or more. They come back, they have enough money to post the bond, increasing bonds amounts, posting mm -hmm. tens of thousands of dollars in bond, and continuing to go out and violate that same order of protection. Right. So after the first of the year, when the Safety Act is implemented, that individual, that first uh, offense, it, the presumption is not for detention, but they violate the order of protection, they come in, uh, they're charged with it, they'll be likely released, depending on it. They could be detained. It's, it's something they could be detained for, and, and right. anything can be detained. Then they get out. If they go violate that order of protection again, now the second one, same deal. They, they may not be detained, but on the first one, the state can file a petition to have their pretrial release revoked, and they will sit in jail until trial. So then, instead of them violating that order of protection a half a dozen times because they had the money to buy their way out of jail, they're going to sit in jail while they wait. Uh, that's an improvement in my mind, mm -hmm. that it is not what's in your wallet that determines whether or not you sit in jail. It's your actions. It's the strength of the case against you. And that's why, in fact, across the state, many victim advocacy groups support the Safety Act. So people that, that support and stand by domestic violence victims support the Safety Act because it leads to those types of cases having these individuals stay in jail instead mm -hmm. of being able to buy their way out. Talk a little bit about the cash bond. The fact is, that's the one, I shouldn't say it's the only one, but it's the one, that, it's the one topic about this that everybody seems to be um, the most up in arms about. And the, uh, the way I, I believe that I read it, or I'm being told it's being interpreted, is that uh, there won't be a cash bond uh, on s certain... Uh, uh, like secondary murder, uh, uh, arson, robbery. Okay. Talk, through, talk okay. me through that. Maybe, maybe, so, maybe give the other side of that. Certainly. So, uh, and I and I also actually give me an opportunity to correct a, a misstatement I made last week. So, there will be no cash bond right after January first. So there will be no charge where, regardless of the charge, you can post a certain amount of money to be released. Now, the way that the the law works is there are certain categories of offenses that uh, can be the person can be de detained if they can be shown to be a threat right and that's class two felonies or forcible felonies where they cannot get probation or conditional discharge so non-prison sentences as a sentence mm -hmm. there are other ways that individuals can be detained but there are certain offenses that fall outside of that classification as the act is written those include kidnapping those include uh, robbery. Those include aggravated battery. Mm -hmm. Those include second-degree murder. Now, my response when people throw those out is, with several of those offenses, uh, second-degree murder, kidnapping. I don't recall the last time anyone in Adams County was charged with just second-degree murder. It's generally a lesser-included count in any murder case mm -hmm. or in a murder case. So to say, okay, somebody can be charged with second-degree murder and then we can't detain them because they can be detained. There's no such thing as a non-detainable offense under the Act. There are other ways that they can be detained. Mm -hmm. But it's also not an offense that's ever charged on its own. Same thing with kidnapping, right? We've had kidnapping cases in the last couple of years mm -hmm. here in Adams County. Mm -hmm. They always included other charges that fall within the definition 
that allow them to be detained under right. this act. So when you say that, it's a bit of a straw man argument. When you say, well, somebody can be charged with second degree murder, and then we can't detain them. Yeah, but that never happens, right? Right. Same thing with some of those other offenses. The only one of those offenses, and I, and I said the other day that people charged with aggravated battery would could be detained. Now, they can still be detained, but they're not in that category. Uh, the problem with aggravated battery, and aggravated batteries are pretty regularly charged individually, uh, where someone just has an aggravated battery count. The problem with aggravated battery is it sounds a lot scarier than it is most of the time. When most people hear aggravated battery, they think of a situation where someone has been brutally beaten, has mm -hmm. been hospitalized, and they were the victim of an aggravated battery. While those do happen, although if somebody's hospitalized and in serious condition, there's a possibility that we might get an attempted murder charge in there or something like that. Mm -hmm. But many of the aggravated batteries we encounter, the aggravating factor that makes it an aggravated battery is the nature of the victim, the identity of the victim, or the location. So, for example, if after this interview you and I went out in the parking lot mm -hmm. and I pushed you, right. that's a simple battery. But because it took place in a public place, it becomes an aggravated battery and moves from a Class A misdemeanor to a Class 3 felony. Okay. Now, you and I could disagree or other people can disagree about whether or not if I pushed you and you were uninjured, didn't need any medical attention, mm -hmm. because I'm charged with a Class 3 felony of aggravated battery, I should be in jail until I have my day in court. Uh, I'm of the mind that that's probably not something that sure. we need to keep somebody in jail for. Now, if they have other things that, that complicated or um, you know, their criminal history or other things that make them seem like they are a threat, uh, then maybe we could discuss it. They have other charges. But those types of aggravated batteries, they get charged as a class three felony when really it's a simple battery just because of the location. Two guys come out of a bar, they're drawing at each other, one of them pushes the other, technically an aggravated battery. Is that somebody that should sit in jail for a couple of months while they wait for their day in court? We can disagree on that, right. right? But it's not somebody that took a hammer to a family member and beat them into unconsciousness and put them in a coma and then just gets charged with aggravated battery. Gotcha. That's, that's not how that's going to get charged. That's going to be uh, a attempted murder, an aggravated domestic battery, something mm -hmm. along those lines. And so that person is still likely to be detained. But uh, baseline, aggravated battery is not one of those, does not fall in that automatic category as far as whether they're a threat or not. But I still think it's not necessarily a bad thing because of the nature of aggravated sure. battery. So that's my response to that. When they throw out these yeah. charges, these are scenarios that are unlikely to happen because they don't generally happen. And these are not on the, their own. These are not the violent individuals that everyone is concerned about yeah. that they think are going to be terrorizing the public. Uh, at that town hall meeting last week, uh, the Adam Yates, the police chief, gave uh, an example of a situation. Uh, I'm going to try to shorten it here, but basically, a uh, uh, a man who you don't know comes to your house, jumps in your swimming pool. You walk up to him and say, please leave my house. I don't want to leave. Police shows up. He says, you're going to be charged with, kid, uh, with uh, trespassing. I don't want to leave. Police officer, from what I understand, under the Safety Act, would write this person a ticket and hand it to them and say, you're charged with trespassing. Have a nice day. I know I may have oversimplified Adam's story, but... In that scenario, how do you see that situation developing? Well, there are a couple of ways uh, that I respond to that. And I've heard Chief Yates tell this story, too. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first, I would say, is I don't have a pool. I don't know if you do, <laughs> David. Um, so I don't know for certain. Right. But most people that I've talked to who do have pools have never had a situation where a stranger has come and gotten in their pool and refused to leave. Right. Right. So it's... 
it seems like a bit of a, a silly scenario that's created specifically to try and point out a flaw with this act. Sure. Right? So I don't know. Maybe somebody can produce a case for me where someone did this and now they've been arrested mm-hmm. currently and, and lodged in the jail to keep from terrorizing people with their swimming. But I don't think it's happened. But let's say that it does. Okay. For the sake of the argument that somebody comes and gets in someone's pool and they refuse to leave. The police are called. The way the act is written, because that is criminal trespass to real property, that is a Class B misdemeanor. Mm -hmm. And the way the Safety Act is written is anything charged below a Class A misdemeanor, so Class B and below, petty offenses. So the difference is Class A misdemeanor, you can get up to a year in jail. Anything that above and felonies, the police can take that person into custody, and then they can be brought lodged until they're brought before a judge for that detention hearing. That pre-trial. It can be removed, removed from the premises and taken to the jail. Class B misdemeanors and below, they're not supposed to arrest them. They just give them the ticket and the notice to appear. Mm -hmm. So from a very technical standpoint, because this is a swimming pool, then yes, it's a Class B misdemeanor. They're just supposed to ticket them. And it's a very carefully created scenario because if they had just come in your house, that's criminal trespass to residence. That's a Class A misdemeanor. They can absolutely be detained. But here's how I think that scenario would actually play out. Sure. The police called, they come and they talk to the person and say, hey, you need to leave. And the guy says, no, I'm not going to do it. And he says, okay, well, you've been told to leave and you're not leaving, so that's trespass. So we're going to give you this trespass ticket and you need to leave. At that point, that's a lawful command from a peace officer in the execution of his duties, Mm -hmm. an authorized act, which means now that individual, by refusing to leave the pool, has committed the Class A misdemeanor of resisting a peace officer. Which goes back to your original thing. Then they can be removed from the, the, the location and taken to jail for that detention act. So again, if it happens, now, I don't know, maybe the police after the first of the year aren't gonna arrest people on uh, resisting a peace officer anymore. They seem fine (laughs) with it now, so I think that's an unlikely scenario. Uh, But that's how I think it would play out. I don't think the police are leaving that person in your pool. I think they're taking them to jail on the resisting a peace officer. If they come back the next day, then certainly one of those bond conditions is going to be stay out of that guy's pool. If they come back the next day and do it again, then they're going to get their, their pretrial release revoked on the earlier case, and then they're not going to be able to get out at all. Talk about that pretrial uh, scenario that, that's going to become a big part <coughs> of basically your everyday. It's going to change how you do your job quite a bit. I know one of the things, again, that was discussed at that town hall meeting was that the, the, the districts aren't prepared for this yet. Is that true? I, there are some things that are still up in the air because of the flaws with the act as written and the questions about whether or not they'll be fixed. Mm-hmm. However, the general preparedness of the circuits, I think, varies. Uh, our office had a training last week where we, uh, it was a, a training with public defenders all over the state. And one of the chief public defenders of another county, another circuit, talked about the preparations that his circuit and his county have made. Mm -hmm. And some of those are the nuts and bolts of this. Talking about, okay, if we're doing these hearings and we're not really sure exactly what those hearings are going to look like because we need to be sure and and get these clarifications. But let's say we're going to have these hearings. What courtroom are they going to be in? Who's the judge that's going to preside over them? Who's the bailiff? Who's the circuit clerk that's going to be in there? Who's the court reporter that's going to be in there? You can make all of those plans. And in fact, our county, Adams County, has been making those plans. We've been having committee meetings for months now. Uh, and, and I've been on that committee. I've been in those meetings talking about, okay, what is this going to look like? Mm-hmm. What days are we going to have these? And right now, we have bond court. 
every day, right. Monday through Thursday at 1.30. If you get arrested and you're brought to the jail instead of just giving a ticket, which does happen right now, mm -hmm. again, we see even on felonies, 86% of the time people still get out of jail, uh, then you come in. If you're detained, you come into court at 1.30 in the afternoon or on Fridays at, I think, at 11 o'clock in the morning, right? And you appear in front of a judge. The state makes an argument for what your cash bond should be, what are your other bond conditions, which are things, aside from the cash bond, that will still happen in these detention hearings. What are the restrictions on what you can and cannot do when you're on bond? Mm -hmm. uh, and then somebody from our office uh, makes arguments on the defendant's behalf, tries to get a lower bond usually, not always, it just depends, tries to get them the most favorable bond they can, uh, and then, or no cash bond or recognizance bond, and we do those every day. So we will have these detention hearings. Will they be every day? That just depends on the interpretation right. of the act. And generally, it, it, they need to file the motion. The state has to file the, the petition or the motion to uh, revoke the pretrial release because the presumption is on pretrial release. Will that be happening every day? It's very possible. Is that just going to replace our bond court hearings? Almost certainly. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about that, well, do we have a judge that is available for those? We have a judge who does bond court right now. Do we have a prosecutor that's available? Yes, they have a prosecutor every day. Do we have a circuit clerk? Yes. Uh, we don't generally have court reporters for those, so they do electronic recording. We'll still have that. Do we have a courtroom that's available? We're not going to have bond court. So we have a public available. defender. We'll have somebody there. So there have been preparations that have been made, certainly. Do we know if everything is going to stay the same for this act, the way it's written right now? No. So there are things that are up in the air, but there have been preparations that have been made. Right. I would hope that other agencies, the Adams County Sheriff's Department, the QPD, uh, the state police, have also had trainings. And I know, I've talked to members of QPD, I've talked to the state's attorney's office, I've talked to QPD uh, and the Sheriff's Department, they've had trainings. So they've been talking about this, they've right. been making preparations. Can we finalize all those preparations? Do we know exactly what time of day we're going to have these hearings? No, of course we don't. But that shouldn't but take terribly long for you to get that done. We should be able to get this figured out. Uh, and, that, and so people have been making those, those preparations. If they haven't, then I don't know what to say, but right. I, I know they've been having trainings, and so I suspect that some of those preparations are already in, in place. I read a, a study um, out of Loyola University that said 56% of the people who have been arrested in 2020 and 2021 would not have would not have been detained as they would be now did i say that right yeah, i think that's probably 20, right yeah. basically 56 percent of the people who are being detained now would not be detained under the the, the safety act okay do you see that number being i i, I know we talked before you did, you hadn't heard of the study but is that a good i mean I think you're telling me that's not such a bad thing. Well, again, I'm not familiar with the study. Right. Uh, you said it was either 2020 or 2021. 2020 and 2021. Okay. Both years. So the thing to keep in mind there is those are COVID years. Yeah. And so is this year. And what I will tell you, and I can only speak to our circuit and our county, the number of cases that we have had charged is down because they have made choices when we weren't be able to lodge people when people mm -hmm. had COVID and we wanted to keep people separate in the jail. So uh, the types of people, uh, the types of cases that necessarily were people were being lodged were different than what they normally were. Uh, beyond that, I think it's very possible that it could be that number, right? The types of people who are detained right now in the cases. Uh, so let's say, for example, you have someone who is uh, addicted to uh, illegal substances. Mm -hmm. They get arrested. Uh, they get a bond. And, and, and oftentimes, sometimes on the early cases, they get a recognizance bond. So they get out. But they have an addiction. So they use again. Police know who they are, they arrest them again. This time, if they didn't have a cash bond before, they're going to now, mm -hmm. and it's gonna be higher than it was before. So that person is going to be detained. Uh, that person 
after the first of the year wouldn't be because there's no violent offense. Right. There's no, you know, without them having some other violation, then initially they're not going to be detained on that first charge. Now, right now, they may be detained, detained for a little while because there's the law in place currently, there was huge uproar about this when it was passed, that anyone with certain categories of offenses gets $30 per day credit against their bond. So if you have a nonviolent offense, uh, a property crime, a, a drug offense, that's not a violent crime, that's not a class two felony or above, then even if you get a cash bond that you can't post, eventually you will get out of jail. You'll eventually be released because that credit will catch up to it and then you'll be released. So those are people who right now are detained because they can't post that $7,500 against that $7,500 or $10,000 bond. Uh, but after the first of the year, they'll be more likely to be released immediately. So when you talk about that 56%, yeah, it's very possible that 56% of the people who are detained right now won't be. Are those people who are accused of violent offenses who are going to terrorize the city? Seems very likely that it's not. They're gotcha. talking about low-level offenses where people just can't post the bond, and they're detained, and eventually they get out or their case gets resolved. So those could be within that. Again, I'm not familiar with the study, but just because it's 56% of the people who are detained now doesn't mean that those are people charged with violent offenses. It's, the impression that I'm getting is once the election is complete, uh, early next month, that now, then Springfield will get together and say, okay, now that we have everybody in place, we have all the newly elected officials, we're going to fix this. And I, put, I use the air quotes for fixing it. You've said that it's a flawed bill, but if you could go before a group of people who was working with this bill... What, what do you see that needs to be fixed first? Well, the main thing is the question of whether or not it's going to be retroactive. Okay. Right? And, and looking at that and saying, okay, do we, do we make this decision and know, you know, we have these massive populations of individuals across the state who are detained. Are they getting out immediately? Are they all getting out at once? Is there no other, you know, do we have to modify the restrictions? Because then the other thing is when someone's detained, so when somebody is not detained, right, uh, they, they tend to have more bond restrictions, right? They go through and they say, okay, you need to do this, you need to do this, mm -hmm. you need to do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. And when they are detained right now, it seems like there are often fewer bond conditions. So they just say, okay, here's a bond. Uh, if you get out, you can't have any contact with the victim, but that's about it, right? There's not a, a tremendous number of other things that we apply to them. Mm -hmm. So then we have a conversation, okay, is this retroactive? If it's retroactive, do we need to look at each of these cases of everybody who's lodged and determine if there are any additional bond restrictions that we need to place on them or, or pretrial release restrictions? Mm -hmm. We have to clean up our language uh, <laughs> after the first of the year. But are there any restrictions of their release that we need to apply instead of just letting them out and saying, okay, right. you don't have to post anything? That's a lot of work. So the earlier we find out that information, the better that's going to be so we can look at that. Uh, the other things are I think there are probably um, – some language that could be cleaned up as to uh, detention and what qualifies and what doesn't. Again, going back to that aggravated battery, that's mm -hmm. a situation where, depending on the type of aggravated battery and, and possibly even saying, okay, if this is an allegation that there was great bodily harm and that's why it was an aggravated battery, which is one of the ways that it can be an aggravated battery, then that is something that can be, is this person a threat? And we can put them in that category with the other forcible felonies where you can't get probation. Uh, that's something that they could look at and other inconsistencies throughout the act like that. I think the main thing, though, is the retroactivity because that's going to take a lot of work and time from a lot of people to figure that out as soon as we know. And so right. the sooner we know, the better. Thank you. I appreciate you taking the time over to talk about this. It's uh, an act that has a lot of people 
fired up. Mm-hmm. I also think it's an act that, because there's so much confusion, um, some of the some of the language that you say it needs to be cleaned up. Um, a lot of people aren't sure what's going to happen, which heightens the uh, the confusion. I appreciate you coming over here and talking about it and trying to trying to help straighten straighten out the the other side of the story. Yeah. I think the more information anybody has is better. People can still disagree and have reasonable disagreements with people uh, on the other side of the courtroom. Yeah. Uh, but we can have intelligent conversations about it when we're all informed, and that's all I'm trying to do is keep yeah. everyone informed. Thank you for watching this week. You can read more about the Safety Act at MuddyRiverNews.com. Thanks for joining us.